July 5th, B, we had a nice long weekend, well-deserved on both of our parts. It's been a crazy year so far. Uh, what'd you get up to, man? Did you go see some fireworks last night? Didn't do too much. Relaxed yesterday, but most of the weekend was spent working. Uh, it was an extremely long weekend, but uh, because of that, I had a lot of a lot of things to catch up on, and I often do that sometimes because... I often take these moments when everyone's relaxing to try to get ahead. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of what I did. And then I kind of relax when I take, I pick and choose my times to relax. I don't really follow the the, the norms of, Hey, I have a long weekend probably because I don't work a nine to five job. I have the flexibility to not look forward to necessarily just long weekends. Um, but I do think it was, it was well needed for a lot of folks um, in America after after what's kind of been going on to have a weekend this long, it really sucks for the people who had to go into work on Monday though. Dude, the people who worked Mondays, like shout out to them, man. Like that's, it's the toughest jobs in society that had to go in. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to them, man, for keeping things running. Um, Glad I was able to do my grocery shopping. Glad I was able to, you know, go, go to a restaurant or I don't even remember what I did, but yeah, you know what it is. It was also yeah. a very dramatic weekend. Fourth of July, just for some NBA history, is the day that Kevin Durant requested his trade to the Warriors. And there was the infamous Russell Westbrook uh, Instagram post of cupcakes that day, calling Kevin Durant a cupcake for going over there. Um, we had a major trade request this weekend. It was Damian Lillard formally, finally, formally requesting to be traded to the Miami Heat. This is a guy who's given his whole career to the organization. I think over the last few years, you know, early on, everyone, I think media wise, wanted him to leave. Then now there's a bunch of new, new athletes that the media is fixated on. So he kind of fell out of the headlines a little bit, but with his free agency um, last year, he extended. And so, you know, he's got a lot of years left on his contract. People really didn't think he would want to leave. He had always made these comments of staying there for the rest of his career. And then there was a lot of drama around Portland's draft pick with Scoot Henderson, basically because he play he plays the same position as Dame, and it doesn't really represent um, the direction of a team that's really looking to build toward a title and maximize their opportunity with a superstar like him. And so um, the the rumors had been building that he'd go to Miami. He gave them credit with uh, saying about a month ago that he had a great relationship with Bam Adebayo publicly, and. Uh, now we're here, man. Now we're here. So, you know, that was some of the course of events. Uh, does, does this surprise you? Like, what was your reaction when you saw it happen? I mean, it's surprising because of who it is and, the, uh, and what he's consistently stated over his career. I think, honestly, like anybody who follows the NBA and has followed Dame would say that this decision was made after exhausting every possible opportunity and every possible conversation to try to get better in Portland. He's been on the record saying he wanted to stay with one team his entire career, but Portland has continued to fail him as an organization over and over and over again. 
And if you look at this offseason again, like you look at the free agent maneuvers, you look at trade potential, their biggest move was re-signing Jeremy Grant to a $160 million contract. You look at the rest of that team, they traded away CJ McCollum. What has come up since then? Nothing, really. Um, it's literally Dame running a one-man show. At 33 years old, he's given 11 years of his career to this organization. And I think it's it's more than fair for him to make this request at this point because he really wants to truly compete. No great athlete doesn't want to to not have a chance to compete. That's all he'd been asking for from the from the Trailblazers. And they resoundedly have like done nothing or really tried to do anything substantial, including this offseason in in terms of telling him that they were going to try to get younger again. So his loyalty has been slapped in the face. Obviously the fans there love him, but I really like this story for that reason, because it's the example of an athlete who has shown nothing but loyalty being put in a position where he's not being treated well by the organization. They're not giving him what he needs. And he's at the tail end of his career um, has done nothing but shown love to this team, to the community, um, given back in 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 ways that that are immeasurable. Um, now, when he makes the request, one of the most noticeable things I heard from the GM was that the Trailblazers were going to do what they had to do to maximize the return on value for Dame, and it, they did not care where they sent it him to. They were going to send him to the team that offered them the most value. And if that's the case, he may end up in another situation very similar to the one he did. He was, he's in, in Portland right now. And I just thought again, you know, it's, 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 it's so interesting to see the discrepancy in how media and fan fans expect loyalty from these athletes. But when they don't show them the same loyalty uh, in return, uh, by doing what's right by the player, uh, it's kind of, it's brushed aside. They're doing what's best for the organization. And how can we encourage players? Um, and I do think the psychology overall should be one like Jane, uh, like Dames, which is where I get drafted to and who pays my bills and who, 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 who helps me get to where I'm at is who I'm going to be loyal to. But these organizations and fans keep doubling down on supporting why people like Kevin Durant have no loyalty uh, to anyone but themselves. So it's just, it's just, this is a, it's like the landmark case, right? It's like in, in basketball to see how this thing plays out and see if Portland really does Dame a solid and sends him to Miami, which is up to this point, seems like they don't want the package that Miami is offering them. And Brooklyn is offering a much better and much more attractive package for Dave. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting scenario. Portland did come out and say that they, like you said, they were going to look for the best option. But when you think about it from a league perspective, players are really going to be watching to see how Portland treats Dame because, like you said, the loyalty that he's given them, I think, warrants him to end up at his trade destination. Now, the question that I have, and this is probably some behind the scenes stuff is that why didn't it happen in his free agency last year, right? Like, why is it happening now with four years left on his contract? And, you know, the only answer that comes to mind 
to me is potentially some sort of maybe like verbal agreement. Hey, we're moving in this direction. And then that opinion changing from the trailblazer side a year into this contract. What do you like? What do you think is, is, you know, the reason for this happening just a year after he signed this, you know, big, big contract and extension. I think promises as always have been made to Dame Lillard on, on what they were going to do. Those promises weren't executed on specifically going in the direction of Scoot Henderson. I think they could have, that was a, a pick that could have really been utilized to bring in some veteran help um, for Dame. And I think the, the writing was on the wall that we're, we're moving to the future and you're, you're not part of the long-term future of this organization um, because there's no reason Dame would have signed that contract if they communicated anything else uh, to him. And it's very interesting in this scenario too, as Dame has been very vocal through his social media in terms of reposting supportive tweets, also questioning some of um, the folks who are saying that he's disloyal uh, now for making this request. You can tell from a from a, a human perspective and an emotional perspective, he's very torn because this goes against his character and he doesn't want to have to do this. Yeah. But at the same time, he wants to play for a team that wants to win and the Portland Trailblazers have no desire to win in the media future. And I think that's exactly what happened. And he met with them again as of Wednesday. He still wanted to stay. And I think the Scoot Henderson pick and the combination of the lack of moves in, in this, this off season or lack of attention to the Portland Trailblazers is why this request happened. And also very unfortunate um, that the Trailblazers are taking this position. Maybe it's just a cover, but if they don't do right by this guy, um, they're going to have trouble ever attracting free agents or ever being uh, a team that's desirable to go play for. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree. I think the way that they handled this, can have a huge impact on that organization over the next decade. And it makes you wonder from an ownership perspective too, like what is the goal of the Portland trailblazers? Is this ownership group trying to win? Are they just trying to grow the value of the asset and just be pretty good for a lot of years and give the fans in Portland something that they can enjoyably go and experience? Like for a lot of franchises, I do wonder if the goal is winning. Yeah. And specifically with this organization, that question has, has, has gotten stronger since Paul Allen's death. I believe his sister runs uh, the organization. Paul Allen was one of the more passionate owners and probably deepest pocketed owners in the NBA um, when he was around his sudden death. We don't know what the ownership group's um, intentions are here or whether or not they're just letting the front office run the organization. And that could be scary because you don't know what the motives of whoever in that front office um, is or are yeah 100 percent um i would love to see him in miami i think that puts miami over the top but the question becomes what do they have to give up for dame you know definitely have to give up harrow definitely have to give up a couple other guys but um we saw miami like you said during the playoffs like they have this ability to take all of these you know players that you haven't really ever heard of and turn them into huge contributors by the end of the season we, it was, uh, we were talking about this before the podcast. I remembered it. It was Gabe Vincent who signed with the Lakers. And yeah. uh, if they're going to trade off, like say Caleb Barton, Tyler Harrow, and potentially Struess for Dame, or maybe a couple picks, does it leave Miami in a position? Obviously, Damian Lillard's sick. 
but does it leave them in a position to, to genuinely be able to make a title run? Well, Miami has very clearly gone, gone all in. Struess has also left. He went to the Cal- Cleveland Cavaliers. Right, right. Gabe, Gabe Vincent signed with the Lakers. The problem is that the, the Trailblazers are saying that Tyler Hero is not a player that they want because um, they're pretty deep at the guard position with their young, uh, their young players. Um, so Miami's going to have to find a third team, but it's very clear that Miami is going all in here and are going to figure out what they need to do to get Dame Lillard, or they wouldn't have allowed the other moves that happened, specifically Gabe Vincent at the point guard position, letting him walk on that cheap of a deal. Uh, it would not have happened. So um, for everyone, I mean, I hope Dame deserves to go where he wants to go. He could have done it last year. He didn't. The fact that the Trailblazers are getting anything in return, again, shows you the mindset of people who are investors versus folks who are actively involved in in deciding the outcome of games which is the players and the coaches um and the difference in their mindsets and the difference in their senses of loyalty it's so funny that he would even publicly say that it could have been so easily done even if that's what he meant he didn't it was almost like a rub to dame the way that he said that like he could have said we're going to work out we we appreciate the loyalty that dame dame lillard has shown to this organization he is uh, indelible part of the of the Portland the fabric of the Portland Trailblazers. We're going to do our best to make a deal happen that both meets the interests of the Portland Trailblazers and Dame Lillard. It was very unfortunate the way that he communicated that message. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I think um, I think that whether it's for leverage or whatever it is, like the the Trailblazers are the ones who are going to look bad in this scenario if Dame doesn't end up where where he said now. Yeah, and he's and he's said that uh, you know if not Miami that there are a couple other options he's given. He's interested in going and playing with Greg Popovich in San Antonio. So it's like, don't send him somewhere that he's not doesn't feel like he can compete. Yeah, because I mean so. he's he's given you his all for eleven years, like you said yeah. earlier. Why why would you do it any other yeah. way? Yeah. Um. So our next topic, uh, pretty pretty controversial. Uh, a lot of folks have had a varying set of opinions about this, but. The Supreme Court just uh, just banned affirmative action. Um, v, I'll let you start. What were your initial feelings and take on this? Um, honestly, I don't know what the Supreme Court overall is trying to do, but it seems like there's a very strong initiative within that court uh, to take control of power in 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 the dynamic of America's landscape because no one really asked for these decisions to start being made uh, at this moment. But between this um, and, and female reproductive rights, it's very clear um, that the Supreme court is no longer a neutral body, whether or not, no matter what side of this you fall on, they are taking a very, very uh, pro right wing kind of philosophical approach um, to governing in the Supreme Court, and it's troubling because I would I would be troubled if they were leading the other way. Um, they're supposed to be neutral, and I don't think that the Supreme Court is neutral uh, anymore. Um, some of this was the political maneuvering that happened um, over the last four years to make it very conservative leaning in terms of the justices. Um, so I'll start with that. Uh, that's very troubling that our Supreme Court is now 
no longer the core center of our system of checks and balances, but they're actually trying to influence legislation and changing legislation. Um, that's troubling and scary. That's not the role. If you if you know um, constitution, the Constitution, what what the system was set up for, this isn't the way the Supreme Court's supposed to be operating. Now, with that said, as far as supreme, as far as affirmative action, I think a lot of the people who discourage um, and are anti-affirmative action, um, like it most things fail to have a proper understanding of the reason why affirmative action was needed in the first place. Um, if you look at the history of America and you look at the history of segregation, you look at um, how long it took for um, black Americans specifically in this country, um, how far behind they were set with policies before Brown versus Board of Education was enacted, before the system of redlining um, was was eliminated was they were put in a significant disadvantage specifically in America that other minorities have not been put in put in right and so the the question becomes how do you solve this problem right like you've done a disservice to people for hundreds of years you've put them well behind the eight ball of everybody else every other citizen in your country how do you correct that Affirmative action was a policy that was brought into play because there was discrimination in college admissions um, and not only discrimination based on race, but it did not take into account um, that black Americans were already at a significant educational disadvantage historically that wasn't going to be solved overnight. So you can't solve that. They have not solved that. If you look at, at what's happening in public schools by 19... 80, by the 1980s, you were seeing much more uh, diversity in schools and many more um, black Americans in diverse schools. Now, progressing backwards where I believe almost 40% of African Americans are in all black schools, 99% or more uh, all black schools. So you look at all of these facts and it, it's deeper than, is this an effective policy or not? It's okay, if you're going to repeal it, what exactly are you going to do to improve the education system to give these minorities a better chance, a better system, better education um, that's on par and equivalent to white Americans' peers? And I also hear a lot of minorities who came in post uh, the civil rights movement complaining that, that, that affirmative action works against them. And I think that that, again, is a, an entitlement argument because almost all minorities that actually have been allowed into this country have are, are already kind of in a position to succeed. Otherwise they, for the most part, aren't allowed. They're obviously, you know, political prisoners and migrants, but for the most part, you're not being allowed into this country unless you actually serve a purpose for this country. Uh, so when they get in and they've been in, Oh, we're being discriminated against because we're not allowed into colleges. I honestly don't know any Indian person who has in in my group of people that I know that has not gotten into college and has not been able to go to go to medical school despite having the grades that are required. Like we have that opportunity, um, and it, 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 it to me it shows that as a country we take these kind of impulsive decisions without thinking about the macro situation that caused it. 
I'm not even saying that affirmative action is the right solution, but was a step to try to correct things. If you're going to repeal it, what steps are you going to take to continue to level the playing field? And they're not offering any alternatives. And that's my issue with this, this thing overall. Yeah, I think, I think you definitely made some interesting points. I definitely think the, the background that you painted there is, is very important to consider when evaluating this issue. Um, me personally, I tend to be anti-policies that attempt to correct things in society. I think that's Congress. And then I think also it's important to separate the role of Supreme Court, which is they're there to say, is this constitutional? Is this not constitutional? And they said it's not constitutional, but it's not their role to offer a solution into the mix. And so the stat, the stat that really stands out to me, and you know, this is something I felt personally, because I watched my Hispanic and African-American colleagues from high school underperforming to me quite significantly, get into several of the same schools I applied for I didn't get into because I had to mark Asian. If I had marked African-American, we saw this with Mindy Kaling's brother, he marked African-American, got into a bunch of schools he had no business getting into. The average score for SATs for an Asian-American to get in versus African-Americans, Native Americans, and Hispanics is 250 points higher. That's a, that's a drastic difference to me. And as as policy, you know, when you're talking about the laws of a country, I'm generally against policy that's race oriented. If you're making a rule for how something works, the rule shouldn't change based on who's in. And if we want to, you know, we love sports on this podcast. Why don't we apply affirmative action to sports? Get more white kids on the field, get more Indian kids on the field. The product suffers. And for me, it's always been the same thing with academics. If you really allow people to have the opportunity to succeed, they will succeed. And, you know, that doesn't mean there's not systemic issues from a schooling level, public schooling level. The prison system is a huge and the policies of the Clinton administration around drugs, especially in the 90s, are a huge reason many African-Americans and Hispanics in our generation, in my generation, grew up without their fathers because of the way in which that mechanism was set up. So I have no disagreement in terms of the inequities that there are in society, and I think they're important to talk about. Um, my view is just that when you're creating policies like affirmative action, you're disadvantaging the, the people who are able to make the highest impact in terms of their intellect, in terms of their contribution. And so you're minimizing the overall quality of your product as a country. And that's just how I see it. Yeah, I, I don't think that the, the data would support you on that in terms of whether or not uh, Asian minorities can continue to be effective in society based on affirmative action or others such as yourself. I think that we have we are born with certain advantages um, that others others do not. Um, in addition, um, specifically where our families' income levels tend to be, specifically Indian Americans, that allow allow our parents to send us to, to colleges and come out debt free, um, for the most part. Um, and then also, I don't know if we're not able to get into a specific university. I don't know any talented Asian or Indian who is being hurt by the system and not not finding an ability to be successful, or they're being kept from being successful. That's that's the first thing. And then the second thing is. Uh, to, to answer to your point, you said, I don't believe in, in policies that correct uh, inequity, but 
that is the only option when in a country or in any nation, there are policies that for hundreds of years have created that inequity to a point where when you say, oh, well, I felt, you know, that they were underperforming, their underperformance was specifically a result of generationally the access to education and the quality of education and also the value of education that was not instilled properly because of a system that until the 1960s had schools segregated and continues to show, you know, through the policies of redlining, if you go to the public school you went to specifically in suburban Dublin versus an inner city Columbus city school, and you look at the quality that is actually offered, that is not fair either. And so when you have a system in place um, that has set these policies in a way that it has disadvantage, and these are actual policies, redlining was an actual policy. So you do have to sometimes correct the other way because you're not going to have it because people have shown that when you level the playing field, they're not going to allow it to be level or fair. And you mentioned sports as well. And that's a very interesting uh, thought. If you look at the history of sports for until the, the mid 1900s, late, the same, same as every other civil rights movement, you look at Adolf Rupp at Kentucky refusing to even allow black players to play the sport for years, despite being more talented, despite being better at sports and and you see it across sports and football and baseball and everything. This is the history of America. And I think what's happening here is white Americans specifically are rebelling because they feel like they're losing grip. And I think that Asians are being manipulated by media to believe that they're on their side. And the truth is they are not, Um, they are on the side of self-preservation and what's happening overall is that, From an academic and professional standpoint, Asian Americans are taking over. From an athletic and sports standpoint, African Americans are taking over. From a labor force standpoint, Latino Mexican Americans are controlling that market. So what they're wrestling with is the fact that their overall, specifically in America, their overall system in which laziness and complacency was rewarded for them Whereas having to work twice as hard is what's rewarded for every other minority in America is being threatened. And I think that's where that's also substantially where um, the push for these policies on on abortion and affirmative action are coming from. They're not coming from a genuine place. Well, there's, there's a couple of things I just want to comment on. I think overall, when it comes to corrective policy, I think the question becomes a question of patience. How long are you willing to wait? for things to get to where they're going to be in, let's say, an equilibrium state. And, you know, if you know any physics, any chemistry, any anything about nature, equilibrium is where everything ends up. So that's why my view is that you don't need corrective policy, because society will correct itself. It just takes time. That's how it works in our bodies. That's how it works in our environments. That's how it's worked sociologically from a psychological perspective, from a personality perspective. That's just the rule of the world. So that's why I don't feel like there's a reason to push on that. And I also want to comment on, um, on being Asian. I'm, I wasn't let on the same field as African-Americans, native Americans and Hispanics because of my race, even though I was more superior to them in terms of talent. So I was discriminated against and I have been discriminated against 
as a result of affirmative action. So that's a factual statement. I'm not brainwashed by media. I know very, very plain and simple that I outperformed several of my colleagues and was not given the same opportunities due to my race. And to me, that's racism in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, you're as, as with many things, I think, uh, and this is one of the problems with America in general is people tend to analyze things from their subjective viewpoint and their subjective perspective based on their own experiences. Um, I've faced, I've faced discrimination, uh, in, in, in my high school basketball team, but it was not because the, 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 the black kids weren't better. It was because the coach's son, who was a white kid, wasn't good enough to be on the team. Even he was underperforming on, on JV. Suddenly he was taking my starting position on varsity despite not earning it. So I definitely, from a subjective standpoint, I can, I can point to all of these issues, but again, again, your discrimination again happened because of your skin tone. This does not happen to white people. Well, it is Um, happening to white people statistically. That's what the affirmative action case showed the Supreme court decision. A lot of the data that was involved in that and shown at the trial showed that white people also were being discriminated against in this admission process. And it was specifically Asians and whites, Asians, including South, South India or the Indian continent. Um, that that had the most racist action against them so like that that's what i'm saying is that from a factual standpoint there is clear discrim- discrimination happening at the academic level against white people and against asians and just because certain races have had the beneficiary in past generations of having the dynamic go the other way doesn't mean that the current generation experiencing it, which is a new generation who didn't participate in any of this, has to pay a price for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to look for objective kind of data that that doesn't doesn't sway one way or the other. And I think one of the interesting statistics that I said to to counter your point is that um, that the the problem is not in higher education. What we keep hearing about is college admissions. But it's really the transition from from secondary to post secondary schools, and this interest this data is very intriguing to me. In the 2015-2016 school year, 16 percent of high school grad- graduates nationwide were black, but less than five percent of students enrolled at selective public colleges were black. White students made up just 52 percent of high school graduates, but they constituted 63 percent of all students enrolled at state flagship schools the following fall. In Mississippi, half of the state's high school graduates were black, but only 12.9% of the of University of Mississippi undergrads were black. Um, it's unclear why that is, but that's, that's where the data is, is kind of interesting to me that if you are a white American and you want to go to college uh, and you graduate high school, you have a better opportunity to do that. And this also transitions um, to, to the debt that's taken on too. This is kind of a, this, this opens a conversation even further is, you know, and, it, and maybe it's another can of arms is what is the actual value of college education and how it disproportionately impacts folks across all color lines, but specifically mostly um, minorities in America. When you look at the debt, that you take on, um, from going to a four-year college 
and those who who have the ability or financial support generationally from a family that's been benefited that's benefited from not being held back for most of their lives to have the financial means to support uh, a student going to college even even these kids when they come out of college are in a situation where they're 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 significantly behind because of the level of debt um, that they have to take on versus other students. Um, and the data supports that as well. So uh, again, I think my overall perspective on things, and, and I think this is the issue with America is that people don't like to look at things objectively and they don't like to look at things, painting the full picture of context. It's so easy. And, and I'm not saying you're doing this. It's so easy to be dismissive of the fact that, hey, what's happening now is what's most important. But history does matter. And why we're at where we're at matters because of history. And because of history, um, specifically in America, I don't think anybody could disagree. And that's the problem that a lot of Black Americans have with other minorities is not recognizing that we're in the same fight. And I think I think that that is one of the major problems here is that the work that they did allowed us as the other minorities in America to have the opportunity for our families to come here. Specifically, I'm very grateful for all their contributions because if they had not fought for civil rights, if there was no Martin Luther King, um, if there was no Malcolm X, um, then I would not be afforded the opportunities. My dad could not have gotten the education and come over to this country um, and created a better life for him and his family if it wasn't for their work. I think some oftentimes because we're so selfish um, and society pushes us to be selfish, we take that for granted and we don't take that into account in our decisions. We only see what's right in front of us and what's happening in the moment. And I'm not saying none of those things happened to you, but disproportionately throughout the history of this country, they've happened to black Americans. And this is one policy that supports them. But if you look at society structurally, continue to be discriminated in their ability to get loans. What happens when they actually have a poor credit event um, or, or some sort of financial setback, their ability to get back to level? None of those things can be disputed or debated. Whether or not affirmative action is the right policy, that's up for debate. But what isn't up for debate is that America has to do something to make up for the history that they've done that's taken wealth out of these people's hands generationally, put them in white America's hands, and allowed them a, a, a clear advantage uh, in this race in America. And as us as, as other minorities see that too, like uh, my, our parents have to work twice as hard, save three times as much to be on equal footing with the, the, with the white American that makes the same amount of money because they have more generational wealth. Well, this is, this is one thing I want to comment on too, is equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. So equality of opportunity, 50%, you said 50% of African-Americans in Mississippi are 50% of college grads in Mississippi are, are African-American, but only 12 high school, high school, grads high are, school, and only 12% yeah. go to college. If we are striving to make it 50-50 in college by lowering the bar for those people, then that is not the intended outcome. There's, like you said, there could be a million reasons why they're not going to college. We don't know the answer to that. But to evaluate success based on those types of statistics is a logical fallacy because you're measuring the outcome of things and you're trying to make all the outcomes equal. Just like wealth in general, 
you're trying to make everyone have the same amount of wealth by your policies, that is in its definition communism. That's not a capitalist society. Well, you know, philosophically, you're very correct. But the thing that I'm trying to, the point that I am making very clearly is that there's a disproportion. There's, there is not a fair opportunity, right? And I brought up a, a perfect example. You know, if you go to a Dublin city school in Columbus, Ohio, versus a Columbus city school, the quality of education, the quality of facilities, the quality of teachers, the quality of access is very disproportionate. And why is that? That goes back to the systems of redlining. Like an inner city school should be just as good as a Dublin city school. But the reason that it is not as good is because of systems like redlining, which pushed a certain group, a certain wealth into certain communities, then redistributed the districting, the districting for, for school funds and local funds. So that's where this problem starts. And I think a lot of people just want to say, well, they're not as smart or a lot of this has to do with their, they don't have the same access from kindergarten through 12 to allow them. And you see this even in proficiency scores, the high school proficiency exams, the disparity in, 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 in results um, between a kid um, who goes to this inner city city school and a kid that goes to a, a public school. And I was blessed enough where my parents prioritized education enough where they sent me to a private school. And my, if to say my SAT scores were not a reflection of the preparation that, that I was given to even do well on those tests, we literally would take time out um, to prepare. I also had access to Kaplan. You know, and, and I think you bring up a very fair point. The issue in America, I hate when they people just say, oh, they're not, you know, they don't perform as well. Why don't they perform as well? It's simply because they're not being given the access to the same level of schooling, the same tech, even the same textbooks for the majority of the history of America. So fix that problem. And I agree with you. Affirmative action is a band-aid because they don't want to actually take the accountability to actually fix the system in which America's education is set up to disproportionately affect black Americans and low income. And this is also affects low income white Americans as well. They're not going, they're not having the same access either. And it's, and when you talk about public, a public school system, they should be level across the board. Yeah, that's fundamentally something I've been thinking about a lot too. I agree fundamentally on the premise that there, uh, there is no, there is not current equality of opportunity. I fundamentally agreed on yeah. that. But um, where it's interesting as well is when you look at the predictors of success, you can invest all you want to the public schools, but the greatest predictor of success is a strong family unit, a healthy father figure, a healthy mother figure, strong psychological basis basically for these children to be able to grow up in a home that that sets them up for life and the biggest reason why asian americans specifically do so well is because it's a very very solid home culture that teaches you the right values to be able to succeed and you know that's why i mentioned the the crime bills in uh in the 90s as one of the examples i mentioned earlier is a way that hispanic and black communities have been disrupted in their home family unit as a result of policy. Uh, my view overall is that they're, they're the number one thing we can do as a society on the individual level. Yes, there's, there's tons of policy we can argue about, but on, on you know, the takeaway of what can I do today right now to make things better 
is be a great father to your kids, be a great mother to your kids, be a great husband, be a great wife and set the right example in terms of work ethic and values, because time and time again, in, in studies, it has been shown that that is the greatest predictor of your success. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. And to your point, it's not just the crime bill. Again, this is these are the systemic is- issues of accountability that America does not want to take for the system that they created. Um, if you look at what slavery did, and you know, I'm I'm I was a history minor, so I know it's something I'm very passionate about. So I actually like to study these things, not to necessarily um, predict future. I think it's, it's, it's a useless major, right? Like I don't understand the need for it to be a major, but it's, you find a lot of data in, in studying it. And where did the structure get destroyed of, uh, of the home for African-Americans goes back to slavery. Again, what the slave owners did was literally separate the kids and the mothers from their fathers. Literally that's what was happening throughout slavery. And so then when the the civil rights act actually happened and they were no longer able to, to police the way they did, that's when a lot of the situations, it wasn't just the crime bill, but Reaganomics. Um, and then also the influx of drugs into society by Ronald Reagan and his administration. I hate when people do, you know, do this is say, think that it's just one set of policies. It's the history of America. You know what I mean? It's, it's literally Republican, Democrat. What they've done is not give a fuck. Um, and so America, the big issue that America has is this isn't about affirmative action. This isn't about, you know, women's reproductive rights. This is about a power structure that exists in America to, to self, for self-preservation. If it wasn't going to be slavery, it's going to be crime, to your point, Right putting in a crime bill. And, and, and this is something that was a very damaging policy of the Clinton administration. hundred percent. It's something funny about it, that crime bill too, is like one of the major, one of the major people who put away like the most folks in, in California was Kamala Harris. She was, she was yeah. like, there's a video I saw of her bragging about how many people she had put away under that crime bill. And it's just like, for somebody who comes from the minority background, like, your point it's never it's not like in today's day and age it's not like someone is sitting there who's white and saying we need to we need to ruin black people's lives like she's half black half indian but it's somebody who's sitting there in pursuit of power in pursuit of whatever psychological thing that they're going through and the ramifications of their actions if they're not done in a very intentional and conscious way about the effect that they have on other people could be quite significant. You have her on one side and then you have, I don't know if you've ever seen this guy. I see him a lot on TikTok, but it's like this older like judge up in, uh, up in Connecticut. Eh, they, they don't really see any major cases. They see like traffic tickets and stuff, but every yeah. highlight I see of is of him letting somebody off by like genuinely empathizing with them, understanding their situation. One of the guys, he's like, can we make sure he gets a ride home? He didn't have a ride home. Like th- this, this, this idea of, getting off on the power position of being a judge or being a police officer or being, you know, in, in any power position is something that I think is outdated. And I think we have to do away with as a society and see it more as a responsibility. A hundred percent. And, you know, part of the reason that I was giving 
pushback earlier is I see this over and over again. And I see this within the system, right? And you brought up Kamala Harris. Clarence Thomas is another example. He would not have gotten into Yale Law School or Harvard if it wasn't for affirmative action. So he reaped the rewards, but is the loudest critic. Once he reaps the rewards of the benefits that it had, it, it gave him, and he's in his seat of power. And the same thing, I find this, you and I talk about this all the time with Indian politicians who change their name to Bobby or Nikki or to, to fit into society versus owning who they are, trying to fit into that power structure once you get there versus reaching your hand back and helping others get there as well. It's it's an interesting, you know, it's a psychological thing that we could spend, you know, <laughs> weeks discussing. But that's another thing that's kind of troublesome about this is that when when we make it back out and we have the privileges that that we fought for, we don't think about the people that don't have those privileges and who are still being impacted um, negatively um, by those lack of privileges. And I think overall, that's the that's what I see fundamentally when I I don't tune into politics anymore. But when I see what's happening in America, I see two sides: one, a, 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 a group of politicians who you know, are, are selling a false bag of goods and false promises to people who have been, um, disadvantaged saying that they're going to help them in another group. That's just blatantly lines, puts a line in the sand and says, we don't care about these people, um, because they're not a large enough population to get us get us in office. And it's just, it's really sad to see both sides of this picture here and why, I just don't tune into it. I think these people are horrible people. I think uh, now we're, we're, we have one more ruling that happened last week. That's I think interestingly, maybe the opposite perspective um, of a minority group that has built themselves a very strong voice. There was a ruling uh, in a case about whether a web designer had to build websites for LGBT couples. Um, The, I don't even think it was based on like a real situation. I think it was based on a hypothetical, but it ended up getting to the Supreme Court. I don't really know this law stuff. I don't know how it gets there, but either way, they decided it. And somebody had a lot of yeah, money. And what the case says is that, and this was really interesting because a lot of people, their takeaway was, oh, the Supreme Court is legalizing discrimination. And I think that it's really important to look into what the case is actually about. It's about whether or not if you're a professional services provider you have to provide service to somebody if you don't believe the same things as them and this excludes food housing water shelter like it excludes basic things that you would need to do if you need to go buy a train ticket they can't say oh no gay people can't ride on a train like that's not allowed and this this quickly became something online that was very much about discrimination against the lgbt community and the thing that I, I did as a mental exercise was swap out in this case, if the web designer is not, it doesn't want to build a satanic website, do you feel the same way about the case now if they were to say, yeah, he doesn't have to build that satanic website? Because the argument on the opposite side is that if someone's a web designer and they have to build a website, maybe it violates their religious beliefs, if they have to do it legally, you've taken away the ability for people to have any sort of thing that they stand for. And I think overall, 
if you're LGBT, support your own community as a web designer anyway. If you're satanic, support your satanic community web designer. You know what I mean? But like, why should you find somebody who doesn't align to your beliefs and force them to do work for you? And obviously it's not the case. Nobody's forcing anyone to do any work here, but that was the premise of the case and the ruling. And so I just, I just found it really interesting if you change LGBT in that blank. And I think this is the case for a lot of the controversial issues. We are all very polarized to feel a certain way if a certain community is being threatened. And there's certain communities that really, really win in the media by, by being threatened. And that's like the kind of primary narrative around them. And I think that if you switch that community with Satanists, I think for most of us, since most of us are not Satanists, and maybe a lot of people in LA, but not, not a lot of the people I know, it makes it a lot easier to just kind of see through as to like, do I really believe this? Because Satanists do deserve a lot of rights. They deserve the same rights as any other person. But then there's certain times where policy, there's like this kind of like moral case that's built that makes you feel guilty into saying, no, no, they should, you know, you have to do that. Otherwise you're discriminating against them. And like, I think there's certain types of discrimination that are important to preserve because it's, it's part of you being an individual. Yeah. You, you brought up um, an interesting point earlier about nature and the idea that things always go to equilibrium. Um, But I think what systems of government and capitalism in which and structure and laws um, interrupt that flow of, of nature and equilibrium um, in interesting ways. And, you know, the bottom line is this, the reason, you know, and this isn't controversial to say, um, the reason the, the, the LGBTQ community and the Jewish American community do much better in America in terms of getting their rights heard and fought for very frankly comes down to how well capitalized they are there. It's not, the system is not based on equality. It's how much money and how many pe- people in power do you have to fight for your rights? And how well do you understand the system of the Constitution in America to be able to leverage the system to benefit you? And that's just, I mean, the, the capitalism isn't a level playing field. And it's not a level playing field for minorities. What we found over the history of America and the history of society before America existed is that if you leave human beings to their own devices, they're going to destroy shit and they're going to create havoc. And that's what's happening is that there's a, there's, there's a natural policing here that's happening that's, that's discriminatory. I mean, the LGBTQ community really understands the rights for minorities better than any group. And also, in addition to that, they're extremely well-funded with special interest groups when you said, I don't know how it got to the Supreme Court because they had people who they could pay, lawyers and others, to fight this case and not a public defender or you know somebody working for free, but they had the capital to do it. And I think, you know, and this is no discredit to them, but I do think it's the nature of society. It's not fair for every minority here. Yeah, I think, I think it's, um, it's funny how when it comes to these types of like, any sort of issue that involves morals, ethics, um, in terms of how it's framed to society, it's really easy to get lost in trying to be a good person versus like trying to think through it. And this is one of those cases that I think 
a lot of people are getting lost in trying to be a good person, aka virtue signaling. And it's a really great opportunity to just dig deeper and say, well, people aren't evil. And if, they, if their job is to uh, enforce the Constitution, maybe there's something more to this here that I'm not understanding as a potential implication of ruling the other way. Because yeah. if they rule the other way, then Joe Schmo with his web design business might have to make some shit that he feels really uncomfortable making. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a a, a, a a very good point. Like, you talked about the Satanism, you know. I mean, I don't think that he should dis- discriminate because somebody is gay, right? If the business is the same business as everyone else's. Now, if it's something that's specifically like, you know, you know something that's like gay porn or Satanism, Satan worship, then, you know, and it makes them uncomfortable as they're designing the page to have to go into the details of those type of things, they definitely should have the right to say no, because I would say, no, I'm not going to do work that I'm uncomfortable doing. You can find someone else. There are plenty of resources where you can go and get that help. You know what I mean? Like that's where the line is drawn. I don't think just because the idea of discriminating against someone, not taking their business, just because you disagree with what they do in their personal life is different than them bleeding that over into your professional responsibilities and you now suddenly having to open yourself up to working with outside of your own personal beliefs. That's, that's, that's where this thing, that was the nuance in this ruling is that the work itself has to violate your religious belief, not the person. Yeah. So yeah, really well said. You stated that, stated that perfectly. Um, so I think that brings us, brings us to the end here. We had some good convos. There's a lot changing in the world and I think it's, it's nice to always dig into these issues because I think there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of layers, and there's a lot of things that we've tried that don't necessarily work. It seems that the solutions are quite obvious, but uh, our politicians would disagree for whatever reason. And I think that's where the mystery lies is what, what stands in between easy to identify problems and simple solutions is it tends to be the bureaucratic machine that is D.C., Yep. And, and, you know, these are conversations like we just had a conversation today in which we didn't fall on the same side of the topic, but you can have a conversation without getting overly emotional. You can also be passionate about your positions. Um, and I think that's something that American can, should, should look at and continue to do is how do we have healthy conversations around topics we disagree on versus, versus having emotional ones. Um, and, and destroying any potential for um, pushing, the, pushing the product forward or pushing our product, which is our country, forward. Well said. So uh, on that note, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Um, as always, stay moving. Be you. Be you as fly. Pilot boys, out. Pilot boys, we get